All right. Welcome to Wednesday night Bible study. It's good to see so many out. The weather is nice. Long sleeve weather. I hope uh, soon to be jacket weather. That's my favorite time of year. And uh, yeah, good to see everybody tonight. Let's go ahead and start in a prayer and then we'll continue in our discussion in James chapter 1. Father God, we come before you, Lord. We are grateful for this time where we could be together and just study your word and Father, we just want to live your word. We want to be a reflection of you, God. We want to share you with the world, for we know you, you are the answer. You have the answer. You are the answer. You provided the answer. God, we are grateful for the salvation that we all have through Jesus Christ, through his blood that was sacrificed on the cross, that purifies all of us who believe through our faith. And God, I just pray that... Uh, as we read through your word tonight that now James is so full of application, so full of great examples of how to live and how to act and really what we're supposed to look like. Father, I just pray that we share the things that come to our mind that we continue to grow together, that we are not ashamed or, or worried to um, speak and, and, and share what we're thinking, whether it's right or wrong. God, I just pray that we can grow together and, and, and sharpen each other tonight. We thank you so much for your son, for the sacrifice he made on the cross. It's through his name we pray. Amen. All right, so before we start, I see some new faces tonight. So what I want to do real quick is just because it's, we're right at the beginning anyway, I'm just going to read through. We're not going to stop on any of it. I'm just going to read through the first 12 verses just to refresh our memory, and then we'll, then we'll get going on some of the new stuff. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no, no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And this is really what I wanted to read again because we're going to kind of continue that thought. We're going, to, we're going to keep talking about that. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and in the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's where we finished. So, let's pick up from there. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. Then the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Why can't God be the reason that you're tempted? Why can't God be the reason that you're tempted? Doesn't it seem like when things are going bad, maybe not in uh, the Christian world, but at least in the world in general, the question people commonly ask is, why would God? Why would God allow this to happen? Why would God let this be the way it is? Why wouldn't God change something? Why is God unable to tempt you? It's, it's really simple. Why? Go ahead, Peter. Yep. Okay. Bertha, I saw you raise your hand. Go ahead. Yeah, there's no evil at all in God. There's not a single bit of evil, of sin in God. It's an important part. And, and what Peter said is also the other important part about it, right? We've all been given free will. We're not robots. We have our own choices. The, the, when sin entered the world... Was God part of that? When sin entered the world, was God part of that? I see some heads shaking. No. Why not? He's totally good. Okay. Who was involved? Adam and Eve and Satan. What was the scenario? What was the scenario? Yeah, he told him not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then, Chuck? God. There was a part there. If there's no opportunity to sin... If there's no opportunity to make a mistake, then there's a reality that you don't truly have free will. If you can't make the wrong choice, then there's a reality there that you can't totally make any choice. Go ahead, Mike. Mm -hmm. So these are constantly under stress, and to stay faithful is a, is a tough task. And so when you're tempted, don't stop from God, because God doesn't put you in that situation. Absolutely. So God, so going back to what Chuck said, kind of bring that together, right? God made the garden and everything in the garden. Just like God made the world that you live in and everything in the world. Nothing that came to be came from anything but God, right? So if that is the case, and then you are given the right to choose freedom of choice, free 
will, then there has to be a good and there has to be a bad. There has to be a right and there has to be a wrong. In the Garden of Eden, how many rules were there? There was one rule. What was that rule again? Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? That was the only rule that they could break. Okay? So who was involved? Adam and Eve and Satan. What was the scenario? What was the temptation? Let me say it like that. What was the temptation? To be like God. Yeah. Whose desire was that? It was Eve's. Truth be told, I mean, you can't just throw it all on Eve. Adam ate the fruit too. So you've got this scenario where God has allowed sin to come into the equation, right? He allowed it. But he didn't cause any of the tempting, and he never causes any of the tempting because God can't tempt because he's not evil. Let's go back to the beginning one more time. When was life more perfect? When was creation more perfect than in the Garden of Eden? It never was, right? So God created a world that was perfect. God created a garden that was wonderful. And God created one simple rule, which was don't eat of this tree. Then Satan comes in and tempts man. Well, here's the trickiest part to me, at least, is Satan can only tempt you based on your own desire. If it's not a desire of yours, it can't be a temptation. It's not really a temptation at all. Right? I can tell you, hey, go jump off a bridge. To some people, that's a tempting idea. I see it all the time on YouTube. To some people, that's never going to be something they even think about. It's not going to be something they even consider once in their mind. And I know that's not the greatest uh, analogy because it's not really sin to jump. Well, I guess if it's breaking the law, maybe, right? But there has to be a desire. And that's exactly what James is talking about. See, sin comes from, yes, yes, we are tempted. Yes, we are um, led away from God by evil. Satan has his part in all of our temptations. Satan has, evil has its part in everything where we miss the mark. But ultimately, the desire comes from within. Go ahead, Mike. The word for the Lord literally means bait. Yeah. <laughs> bait only works if the fish wants to bite it. Or... If you're bass, well, I'll leave that alone. If you're bass fishing, you can drop it in their bed, and even if they don't want to bite it, you shake it enough, and eventually they'll get mad enough to hit it. Maybe, maybe that's a good analogy. I don't know. So it comes from within. I think that's really important as we go further into James. The desire then conceives and gives birth to sin. Where have you heard this kind of talk before? How about the Sermon on the Mount? 
When you think of the Sermon on the Mount, what was some of the things that Jesus did that kind of blew some of the scribes and the Pharisees away because of what he was saying, right? What were some of the things he said? He said, you have heard, don't murder. What did he say after that? Yeah. It starts with anger, right? It starts with jealousy. It starts with bitterness. There's places where it starts, and that starts from within. He said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. Then what did he say? Yeah. If you lust, and you allow that lust to build in you, it's just as bad. And in fact, uh, my interpretation of it is, if you allow that lust to control you, eventually it's going to lead to that exact sin. So the desire comes from within. So part of what we're fighting is not just evil. Part of what we're fighting, and maybe this is going to get me in trouble, but to me I can't read the scripture any other way. Part of what we're fighting is ourselves. You were all made perfect. You were all made sinless. You were all made good and righteous. You were all made in the image of God, just like me, right? You were all breathed the breath of life from God. God gave you this life, and it all came from goodness, and every good gift that comes down is from God. He surrounds you with good. But you're also surrounded with sin, One of the things I realized, and I had a big family, so I realized this very young, but I realized it even more with my own kids. Who teaches a child to act up? It does, doesn't it? It just comes naturally. It depends on personality and stuff, right? I mean, not all kids, not every kid's the same. They don't act the same. They don't throw their temper tantrums the same, all that, right? But nobody has to teach them to be bad. They just sometimes are bad. And that comes from a desire from within them. And so this is where I want to be careful. I'm not advocating in any way, shape, or form original sin. I don't think because Adam and Eve sinned, we're all born sinful people. But I am saying that you are surrounded by a world of sin that is conditioning, conditioning you to desire things that are sinful from a child. From the time you can reason and start to think and process for yourself, sin is being pushed in you. The desire for sin is being fed in you. <laughs> and that's something that we all have to fight when we are baptized into Christ, there's almost like a reprogramming that goes on, right? You have to start thinking different. You have to start um, feeling different. You have to start processing the world different than the way you did before because the world taught you desire and sin and temptation. And God, through this process, is trying to remove that desire for sin 
in temptation. I think, I think this is a really important thing to understand when it comes to understanding the world. Go ahead, Doug. Back up one verse. It, where he says it was lured and enticed by your own desire. Look the interlinear Bible. It's got another word in there, but um, it says being drawn away. I guess I'm going to assume enticed kind of includes that as well as enticed. But drawn away from God. This is what you're talking about. The world, Satan, draws us away. Every every breath draws us away from God. Yeah. Back to you can't be tempted by God. Why would God tempt you to leave Him? Yeah. I think I think that's good. I mean, in, you're getting a little bit ahead of of where James says. Right. Um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. But even going back to the Garden of Eden, when did we go back? There was a separation that happened because of our sin that we have not reclaimed. A time where people literally dwelt with God that we have not reclaimed. When will we reclaim that? When we live with him in heaven. When we're in his presence again, fully in his presence, in his glory, right? So, I mean, even, even the idea of being lured away or drawn away, this is what the world is trying to do. Make that separation greater and greater and greater. And the scary part is, you can actually feed that desire and feed that temptation so much that you don't feel the same anymore about sin which is why I went back to the Sermon on the Mount to begin with and said, think about what Jesus was saying there. He's talking about these battles that start, small battles within that turn into large battles and are not within anymore. Anybody want to add to that before we move on? I spoke a lot. Go ahead, William. I think you, uh, you have to want to participate. And, and, and so, you know... When, when, when I was raising my kids was real young, the key is to, to teach them how to say no. Mm. And, 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 and I got that from Jesus in the wilderness. Mm. That's what Satan wanted him to do. He wanted him to participate. And he said no. And he told him the reason why. And uh, I think that's that helps your, that helps you, but also helps you raise your kids to, you know, because the world is telling you, come on, it's all right, just try, you like it, and uh, and and Jesus is saying no to sin, God is saying no to sin, so it's okay for you to say no to sin. Yeah. Yeah. Paul. I know we've all experienced this, but sometimes, you know, I may have a thought, and I'm like, and I, and I know the scripture here says that um, that it's our own heart, but sometimes I have a thought, I'm like, how did that come for me? Because the scripture also says we battle not against flesh and blood. And so I'm, I'm trying to, I've, over the years, I've wrestled with that, like, I know that my heart is evil on its own without Christ, but at the same time, some thoughts, I'm like, really? How how does that even enter my mind? Yeah, well, I, I, I believe that there is a battle that's internal and there's a battle that's external. And some of it the world's pushing on you and some of it 
is spiritual warfare. And I don't know how to explain that any other way than to say that, you know, you, you, it's no different than what am I listening to all the time that starts to play in my head before long it starts to talk me into some of those thoughts, right? What am I seeing all the time? What am I spending my time watching before long that starts to play with my head and I start to see it the way they see it. So garbage in, garbage out the old way they used to say it all the time. It's why I threw all my CDs in the uh, church pond a long time ago because I had a lot of garbage in my, in my, on my playlist. And so I think there's always internal, always external. And some of that is, is not just your friends and all that. It's spiritual warfare. It's, it's the way of the world. And the way of the world is very deceiving. I don't, very deceiving. Constantly trying to talk you into what God tells you is wrong is right. And what God tells you is right is wrong. And you see that every single day, sometimes, sometimes in greater ways than others, but every single day. Anybody else before we move on? It's a loaded scripture there. God does not tempt. He allows you to be tempted, though. He allows you to be tempted so that you have free will and you can overcome. And God has made us all overcomers. I just want to repeat that before we go on. All right, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perf perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So if he's good, he's always good. That's what it's saying. Everything that comes from him is good because that's all he is. There is no variation. He doesn't change. He's been consistent from the beginning to the end. And this gets kind of back to our conversation we started in 1 Corinthians about the idea that God is out of time. The time is for us. We're the ones who are changing and growing and, and, and making choices. And God is who he is. And what God is, is good. And God's word is the truth. And God's way is the right way. So there is no variation. There is no shadow. What you see, and this is important as well, what the God that you see in the Old Testament is still the God in the New Testament. The God that sent Babylon to destroy Israel is still the God that sent his son to take your cross. Because there is justice and there is also forgiveness right? There is mercy, but there is also wrath. And we see that over and over again with what we're going through with the parables. And there's always that little part where it talks about there's a coming judgment. Same God. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why are we first fruits? Peter, Go back, Go back. okay. I wanted to say something. Okay. Um, in um, February 1987, I was on the deck of an aircraft carrier at 10 o'clock at night by myself. And I looked at how awesome it was, you know, the cable to catch the jet. And I was in Mayport, Florida, and I looked out over the harbor, and it was full of warships. I was a backslider for 17 years from God. That night, God came back into my life when I looked up in the sky. And uh, the first thing I thought about God, good, like it says there, and love. And uh, I've never turned my back since then. 
I've just grown with him more. That's just, you know. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's good testimony. That gift from above for me. Yeah, yeah. Getting more. Yeah, I appreciate that testimony. So we went back to verse 18. Did anybody want to say anything else about this? I kind of jumped through it. Don't want to cut anybody off. Why are we first fruits? Scripture right here says, of his own will. It was out of his will. He willed us into existence. This was part of his plan. You are actually a big part of his plan if I read the scriptures correctly. So why are we first fruits? Sue? Some people believe because James was writing very early in Christian history yeah. after Christ. And at that time, the church, at least that he was involved with, was mostly Jewish or came from a Jewish background. And he, a lot of people believe that he saw them as the first fruits becoming Christians, but the Gentiles were going to be added to and they're, you know, and all of us as well. So mm. it was just the beginning. Okay. Chuck? Not being a farmer, and most of us aren't. Yeah. But I think, I'm wondering whether or not the first part of the crop is the richest, it's the best. What comes later has less solar light and maybe less water. <coughs> In other words, those fruits that come there are going to be less. They're mm -hmm. not going to be as full. They're not going to be as rich as far as nutrients. And I'm kind of wondering whether that's what James is talking about here. Is the first, fruit, first fruits is we're the best of all of his creatures. We're the most robust because he gave us soul. Because he made us in him is his image. Mm -hmm. and, and that, we're the best of all the creatures he created. Man was the best. Yeah. And out of everything he created, who was, were, were we created first? And what day were we created on? The sixth day. So I actually 100% agree with your, your um, interpretation there that we are the best thing he ever made, that the first fruits of creation was not actually, if you're, if you're getting in a pecking order, he made other things before we were ever made, but when he made us, he was done. And the only thing that he made in his image was us. And I also agree that there could be a double meaning here with what um, Sue was saying, and I, I've heard this many times that the Jews were, anytime you see the first fruits, you, you should think of the Jews because they, they were the ones entrusted with the word of God, and um, he, he came to them first. Jesus came to his own people. So, I, I, I like what you said, though, Chuck, that we're the best. You know, at the end of the day, there is nothing like us, at least known to man, in all of the universe. 
Not just this world, in all of the universe. We're the only thing that has reached this level of intelligence, communication, relationship. Go down the list of things that we do that nothing else in all of creation is capable of doing, especially to the level that we do it. Brian, were you going to say something? Aren't the angels even jealous of us? Say that louder. Aren't the angels even jealous of us? The angels want to look into things that we know. Scripture says that. Scripture says that. All right. This one, y'all going to have to help me with this one. This one, this one, uh, the wisdom in this one comes with age, I believe, and experience. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why is it important to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? Who is... Who will raise their hand and say, this is, this is me? Nobody? Nope. <laughs> Definitely not me. You're in good company if you didn't raise your hand. This was an example, Mike. <laughs> yeah, this is hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. So let's break it down one at a time. Why is it important to be quick to listen? Or quick to hear. Why is that important? It makes you other-centered. Is that what I heard? Focused on others as opposed to yourself. Yeah. So, you may think you know the whole situation, but you don't. You nope. may have one person who has just sit there, just put something in your ear, and it's jaded. It's tilted. Yeah. It's half-truths. And you got to be quick to hear so you can hear all the different sides before you can react. Yeah. You ever been in an argument before? How about an argument with somebody you really, really love? What? It's hard. It's, it's hard. It's hard. You ever get in an argument and realize that the person that you're arguing with, they're not really even listening to you, they're just thinking about what they're going to say next? How much communication actually happens? How valuable does that argument become? I think we're all guilty of that. I think it's part of human nature, especially when we think we're right. Go ahead, Chuck. In that particular situation, you may be talking, but there's no communication. Exactly. It's because you eventually end up waiting for the person to take a breath. And as soon as they do, you go right in there and start saying what you were going to say. Yeah. And they're just waiting for you to take a breath so they can do that. Yeah. You're really just talking to yourselves in a heated fashion, right? Yeah. I, I think. I'm in agreement with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was going to be some wisdom. Like I said, this, is co this comes with experience. This comes with experience, right? So, yeah, I think, 
I think this is a natural tendency. I think it's something we all struggle with, but I think it's something we all need to be reminded of constantly, constantly. A lot of little issues turn into big issues because the other person isn't hearing. And then they're not perceiving. Go ahead, William, and then I saw you, Doug. I'm going to speak for myself. This is something that I work with all the time. I mean, I really, you know, kind of be quiet and keep your big mouth closed type uh, (laughs) problem for me. So I kind of, I'm talking about me. I mean, uh, somebody could say something and, and, uh, uh, and I just catch the first part of it, and I'm ready to jump back. I, I am. I have to. I have to calm myself down and listen. Yeah. And sometimes I have to let it go for a little while uh, and try to digest it. But I'm speaking for me. This, this, this is hard because in my environment I grew up with. Uh, uh, this part, and it's the flesh. If you don't come back, you're showing that you're weak. Yeah. And 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 people are gonna jump on you. Yeah. But uh, it's not the godly way. This is the way God wants us to do things. And I thank Him for it. A lot of wisdom comes from hearing, doesn't it? I think there's a proverb about someone who speaks a lot versus someone who speaks a little. Anyway, why slow to speak? <laughs> Say that again. I, I'm having a hard time hearing. I'm embarrassed myself. Oh, okay. Yeah. A little too quick. Should have thought about that, right? Something's coming out and you're wishing you could take it back before you even finish your sentence. Happened to me more than once. Go ahead, Susan. You can't take it back. With family, you know, I hear so many people in our generation, in our world today, say, you have a right to have your own mind. You have a right to do all this. And you really don't have that right because the damage that's done, especially in families, and to, I see children at school when teachers, you know, they lay into a kid and they say these things, and I'm like, that child will never forget that. No matter what happens in school, no matter what his grades are, you have damaged that child. Yeah. And, I, and I think that that's the worst part. Yeah, and the, when the bad things come out, they're a lot more damaging than when a good thing comes out. It's, encour- it's encouraging, but it's a, it takes more, right? Chuck? Also, to me, they all kind of link together. With, if you're quick to hear, in other words, you're really listening to what somebody's saying, before you speak, you have to think about what they just said. Yep. And it might, and, and part of what I've done is, okay, somebody says something to me, I'm going to kind of mirror it back to them to say, this is what I think you're talking about. Is this what you really mean? And that, but you have to think about it first before you do that. That means you're slow to speak because you're thinking about it before you talk. And, and that goes together that if you really come to an understanding of what the situation is, you're going to be slow to anger. Mm. But if it's, you don't listen, you shoot your mouth off real fast, you're going to get mad. Yeah. And then you're going to, then you're going to damage a relationship potentially too. Mike? 
talking about is way part of what I do when I do marriage counseling. I let one speak and the other has to listen. And it's amazing what that person hears their mate say. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not even the same ballpark because mm -hmm. they haven't practiced to listen and make it important. Yeah. yeah sometimes our own desires, our own um, wants get in the way too. Um, I'm going to tell on myself, Amy, if you're watching, this is part of being married to a minister. Um, so yesterday, you know, we're in the house, but everything's scattered, and I'm doing my best as, as well as working here to get us unpacked, and so is Amy, and that gives us very little time to do that. And I don't know about you guys, but we're really routine-oriented, very organized people. You probably don't believe that with me, but it's very true. And if something, especially for me, if I put this down and I walk away, that's gone. I don't know where it's at. So the stress of having a whole bunch of stuff in boxes and not knowing where anything at is at is driving us both crazy. So I'm trying to be the hero, like most men usually are, right? I'm trying to be the hero and take away the stress. And every time she says, you know, I need to find this because, you know, this is making life very hard right now. I go on my search and I find the box and I bring it in and I, well, she said about 10 things on Monday night while we were laying in bed. And I remembered all 10. And I made sure I went out and found those 10 things and brought them into the house. Unfortunately, I brought them in places she didn't like. And so she came home. And this is going to take a minute, but I think it's worth it. She came home and she started getting after me. The stress, we had an AC guy coming because our AC wasn't working exactly right. And, and we have movers coming the next day to bring in furniture. They didn't show up, by the way. But, you know, that there's just stuff that was going to be in the way. And, and, and all I could hear was, you're not doing it right. That's all I could hear. I'm trying to provide, and it's not good enough. And I, I, I left the house. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't know if I'm doing it too slow or too fast, but it's one or the other, and I don't know how that's possible. And then I realized I had to stop. I had to replay everything that she said in my mind and think about what she said, get out of the tense moment where I was offended. I can't believe you're not, you're not happy with my work. And then I realized... She didn't want me to leave. I was going fishing, by the way. She didn't want me to leave until the AC guy was done. She didn't want to be at the house with the AC guy by herself. But that's not what I heard. I heard, you're not doing it right. And so I think this is extremely important, not just in our marriages, not just with our kids, not just in our work relationships, but even in this situation, I'm not telling you to hold back the things that you want to say and share, but be quick to listen. Be slow to speak. And if you have disagreement with, with people, be, be slow to anger. And all that will benefit you to get to the right conclusion. 
Nobody's perfect, and none of us are going to get to the right conclusion first try every time, no matter how right we think we are. And at the end of the day, it doesn't, we don't look like God when we're not this. We don't take on the characteristics of God when we're not quick to listen, not slow to speak, not slow to anger. So, anybody else? Want to tell on themselves? Anybody got a confession you need to make? It's good. It's good therapy. Just get it out. Oh, Bertha. <laughs> tell us about William. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no way. No, no. Not going to out William? <laughs> I was thinking that uh, sometimes in a relationship when the other person isn't making sense, that uh, slow to speak, slow to anger is real important because you're listening and it gives you a chance to try to figure out what's going on here. This person is not making sense and I know they're sensible. Mm -hmm. So there's gotta be a reason for why they are behaving like this. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes we forget that and we slam on the last two, start talking, 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 and get all blowed up in anger. Instead of doing what the scripture said, slow to speak, slow to anger. Start listening, realize how much you care about whoever you're speaking, is speaking to you, Mm. and try to decipher it. That's wisdom. You know, I bet you guys never argue. You're like two of the most patient people I've ever met. No? <laughs> All right, we're going to move on. We're going to move on. We're going <laughs> to... The fact of the matter is we're a whole lot better now than we were five years into the marriage. Yeah. yeah. We are. Yeah. We are. It takes time. This is something that I don't, I don't know any, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody that's just natural. It takes time. Okay. Verse 21, therefore, we're good, right? Okay. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So we got the main point of, of, of Christianity. We've got the main point of why Christ came is, is to save us from this filthiness and this wickedness that we've been taught our whole lives, that we've been surrounded in because of our own desires and the temptations of, of evil that are all around us, that are even being pushed in the cultures of the world at different times and different ways. Then he says, receive with meekness the implanted word. Why is it so important to receive the word of God with meekness? Chuck. I kind of like what, what it has. You use humbleness as opposed to meekness, but it's the same thought. Mm-hmm. That means I'm not going to put myself first. I'm going to do what the word says, which is, which is what he wants rather than me. But if you're not humble, if you're arrogant, you're going to want to say, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Yeah, 
I think everybody even struggles with that from time to time. Well, I know better. I know, I, and I, I see um, churches, big churches right now, trying to find ways to excuse certain parts of Scripture and, and say that those aren't the Word of God anymore. And I think it all, all boils back to, if I were God, what would my rules be? When really that's the exact opposite of how we should read and interpret Scripture. I know that I am fallible. I know that in all of the goodness in me that I can't, I cannot make that line perfectly straight. Only God can. And so that, to me it's so important to say this over and over and over again because I think it's the way that the world, um, especially with the younger generations, my generation and younger, um, is really attacking the word is to say, you know better. You know better. When none of us know better than God. So if there's not meekness and humility that, that comes with um, reading and understanding the word of God and putting it in context with your life, you're going to lead yourself astray at times. Doug. Yeah, I think this is a different application of the same advice that was given earlier to to listen first yeah. before you speak. And I think in this case it's don't let yourself get in the way of understanding what the world is attempting to do. Yeah. Doug. The other Doug. Other Doug. <laughs> Doug in the sound booth. There you go. Um, I also see the parable of the sower in this one. You gotta be the right soil. If you can fill the birds or thorns or traffic or whatever, you won't receive it right. You won't save souls. The back's up to before that, even the first fruits, kind of looking like a sacrifice. So to to humble yourself to be a sacrifice so you can be the right soil to produce 30, 60, 100 fold with the word as the right soil. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta be planted. We've got to be trees planted by the river of life. We've got to be trees planted in that right soil. And, and part, of that, part of that soil is who we are, not just what we're born into, but who we are as people. And that's well said, Doug. I, I had a friend that um, when I was young that was very, very close friend of mine. My mom will still talk about how he used to come to our house and literally eat every leftover in the fridge. And, um, oh man, we were close. I don't, I have two friends that I don't remember meeting, but one, we were like in a playpen together, I don't remember meeting him. And the other one, I just don't remember when I met him. But it was very, very young, kindergarten, first grade, something like that. We went all the way through high school together. Super close friends, went through a ton of crazy experiences. When I got on fire for the Lord, it's probably somewhere between 14 and 16. And I started talking to my friends regularly about the gospel, about the word of God, and their need for salvation. And my friend was ready to be baptized. 
And I don't know, I don't know, I don't know how this worked out the way it did, but our youth minister, the Sunday he was supposed to get baptized, was doing a lesson on Romans 1. And my friend's brother was homosexual. And that was all he ever needed to hear to decide he was never going to be a Christian. Which is why I say all the time, we all come to a place where we find in Scripture, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter what our experience it is, it doesn't matter whether we have a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt or whatever that's affected by um, that perfectly straight line, we all come to a place where we wish the Word said something different, where we wish that it was a little bit different, where we have a hard time understanding certain parts of the Scripture, which is why you have to come to the Lord in meekness. You have to come understanding that I see a small part of an enormous picture where God gets to look at the enormous picture the entire time. We have to come into the understanding that my ways are not God's ways, that God's ways are so far above my ways that I cannot comprehend them. There has to be a master aspect, a Lord aspect of God. And if you don't come to the word with meekness and humility, at least for me, I don't, I don't see how he can be my Lord. Everybody has authority in their life. Sometimes authority tells you something you don't want to do. You do it because it's what the authority told you to do. It's the right thing to do at that time. There has to be a Lord part of God. That's what I see with the meekness. It's so important. Anybody else before we move on? William. I, I see Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus uh, as a person who really listened and showed meekness or, or humble and, and really did not exert the authority that he felt uh, uh, he had or others felt he had. I think, think he was really listening and trying to understand. Yeah. You know, that's, I'm glad you said that because that goes back to what Doug um, said earlier. And one of the things that I've seen in, in our lessons of, as we've been going through the parables and even where Jesus explained why he taught in parables, where we started, was that people weren't willing to see and they weren't willing to hear. And that's what led them astray. They weren't willing to think about the word of God because it got to a place where they couldn't agree and they just, they moved on. And I, it's a tough part of life. All right, verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the perfect law, that perfectly straight line, and, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Hearers and doers. 
One of the ways that um, many ministers are talking about it these days is they say there's consumers and investors. There's people who come to listen and there's people who come to get to work. Here's endures. You have a responsibility to be Mary and you have a responsibility to be Martha. Why did Jesus make a distinguishment between Mary and Martha? You remember that? Why did Jesus say, Martha, you need to be more like Mary? Desire to listen to what Jesus had to say. Martha got wrapped up in cooking and getting supper ready. Yeah, she's preparing, she's doing the work while Mary was listening to Jesus. Go ahead, Chuck. One recognized the priority and the other one didn't. Yeah. I don't know whether Martha had any idea that Christ was, was going to die and how soon he was going to die or not. I don't know that Mary did. But Mary said the priority here is I've got God in front of me talking face to face. The food could wait. And Martha said, we've got to get the food ready. We've got people coming over and like that. So yeah. it was a question of priorities as to which was more important. Yeah. And so God is not saying that it's more important to hear. Right? He's not saying that in every situation you should be Mary. But in that specific situation, Mary had exactly what you just said, Chuck. God literally in person sitting in front of her teaching, sharing. What would be more important than that? If you had that opportunity one time for five minutes, would you take that five minutes or would you, I got too much to do. It seems preposterous when you say it that way. But Mary and Martha, this wasn't, it wasn't a new thing. Jesus, Jesus spent a lot of time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were good friends. They were close supporters of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus wasn't going to be there forever. So it is important. It's important to hear. You can't just be a doer either. Or you won't do it right. Go ahead, Chuck. I've run into people who they listen to the word, they can quote scripture and like that, but it's academic. Yeah. It needs to be practical. It needs to be something that you practice. You, you, you know what, what God wants and you practice it. So those that just hear it to say, that was really interesting. I mean, Paul ran into that when he was down in Athens. Everybody says, that's really interesting what you're talking about. They just want to debate. Mm -hmm. To them, it was just an academic exercise mm -hmm. in philosophy. And yeah. doers, uh, hearers of the word, a lot of times are there for an academic exercise, for some mental stipulation to argue some point. But they're not interested in doing the word. Yeah. Yeah. He's getting ready to go into faith and action. And to me, this is the big setup. You, it is important to hear. You got to hear the word of God, and that builds up your faith in God. But if all you have is faith, then your faith is dead. So. You can't just be a hearer. You can't just come 
and sit and listen and check your box and go home. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of people in America, that's what church is. The, the common statistic that has been said my whole life, I don't, I don't know how many times this has been written. I don't know if the numbers have changed or what, but it all, the, the, the statistic that I've heard over and over in my life is 10% of the church does 90% of the work. And that's probably true in almost every situation. Not just church, but in every situation. Because there's a lot of people who come to be fed, but they don't want to actually turn around and do the feeding. And the truth is, and I, I, I did a sermon about this a long time ago, the church is a hospital for the spiritually sick. At one point, you're the person on the operating table being changed. At the next point, you're the doctor doing the surgery. You can't just be a hearer all the time. You have to start to put that faith into action. We can't just be um, consumers but we also have to be investors, and that's what God is calling us to be. He says, if you're a hearer and not a doer, you're like a man that walks away from a mirror and forgets what his face looks like. Anybody ever do that before? You walked away and you forgot what you looked like? I might forget what clothes I'm wearing. I might forget that I didn't comb my hair. But I don't ever look in the mirror and go, that's not me. That's what he's saying. You walk away and you forget who you are. Then he finishes with this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This person's religion is worthless. I've talked about this, this scripture countless times because it's a very important scripture to me. Your actions speak louder than your words, but your, your words speak plenty loud to people as well. And this is something that I, I don't know about you, but I wish I had a better bridle on my tongue. I certainly have a better bridle than when I started, but I still wish I had a better bridle now. Um, maybe you could be baited. Maybe when you get around the wrong people or the right people even, you, your tongue gets a little loose. Maybe you just are, like to gossip. I mean, there's so many different ways you can sin with just your words. James says if you can't control your tongue, your religion is worthless. Go ahead, Bertha. I think that part of that controlling your tongue, it's possible to look at the beer and don't remember what you said. But the people who heard you say it, that damaged your character. And yeah. that's not sometimes they don't quite forget. One minute you're saying, uh, scripture tells me, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. But if this happens, I just gotta do it. I know God gonna forgive me, but I gotta do it anyway. Yeah. Then you go back to the mirror and I'm so holy. I'm a saint. You don't remember all that you just professed before all these people and you would say it again because this is just 
what's ingrained in you, when it's time to step across the line, I'm going to step. And then I'll come back. But we got to live better than that. Yeah. I think it also goes to the scripture, it goes along with what you're saying, that your, your heart is connected to your mouth. And what flows from the heart flows out of your mouth. And I think that's extremely, extremely important. And yet again, another thing that, the, in my opinion, the world is, it's not that big of a deal. Words really aren't that big of a deal. Go ahead, Sue. In a sense, uh, what comes out of your mouth is kind of a mirror of what's in your heart. Yeah. We can deceive ourselves about what's in our heart, but what comes out of our mouth is truly a mirror. Yeah, that's well said. Last scripture. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unsustained from the world. Pure and undefiled religion. Take care of those who need to be taken care of. Pure and undefiled religion keep oneself unsustained from the world. A lot of times when we read that, we focus on we need to do better with orphans, we need to do better with widows, we need to do better with um, those sort of things. But also, it doesn't just end there. That's not all it says. It says keep oneself unsustained from the world. Unstained, I'm sorry. Unstained from the world. Did I say sustained twice there? Unstained. Don't let the world stain you. You've been covered in Christ. You're a reflection of Christ. You've been clothed with Christ. That's what the world needs to see. And it starts with taking care of people that can't take care of themselves. That's really one of the most generous, loving things that you can do. And one of the ways that we need to tell, take care of those who can't take care of themselves is by telling them the gospel, and I stand by that. Because if you really love somebody and you're not giving them Jesus, you can love them for this world. But the next is going to be way more important and way, way more sustained by the Lord. Anyway, um, any thoughts real quick? I know we're over time. Go ahead, Brian. Like you said, sometimes you're on the operating table, sometimes you're the doctor. Serving others is such a huge thing. Absolutely. It takes humility to be served. And when you don't allow others to serve you, when you don't have that humility, you're robbing those other people the chance to serve you. And I think that's either a society thing or a cultural thing, but it's, I think it's very difficult for us to allow others to help us. Yeah, I agree with you. I, it's harder for me to let somebody serve me than for me to go serve. It's definitely, that's definitely harder for me. Go ahead, Susan. does recurrently in his book is, first he tells you what not to do. Yeah. And then he says, so this is what you should be doing. You know, you're there to help people and create good things, and you're not there to criticize. You're there to act in this way. So, and you need to do that a lot of times. You can't just constantly tell people, don't do this, don't do this. You need to tell them, okay, if you're taking care of a widow and an orphan and all these things, you're not going to be out there gossiping. You're not going to 
you're going to be busy not thinking about yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, my parents are great examples of taking care of orphans. Um, that's been in my house, that's been part of my life, as, even as a child, even before they were adopting children, they were taking in friends who had problems, children, and they were living with us. One of my best friends lived with us for a while because their family was going through some hardship. And <clears throat> me and my dad and my mom have had lots of talks that have helped shape who I am, but probably nothing's been a stronger shaper for me than that. It's very selfless. I still look at them right now and I think, how can they do that? I can't even imagine. I have three boys. That's all I can handle. Youth ministry is easy. You deal with them, but they got to go home. Very selfless thing. And if you know my parents, you know they're very selfless people. So, uh, and it makes, your, it makes your impact on people huge when you're living it out. And that's what James is all about. We can have a greater impact if we actually apply these things and live it out. We can all come and we can consume, but if we all become investors, this church will have a bigger impact on the community. It, it, it all comes full circle every single time. But we got to apply what we're being taught. We can't just be hearers. we got to be doers. Anybody else? I'm giving everybody one last second. And we're done. Cut. Thanks for coming tonight.